Thank you, Nate. I surrender all. Surrender is a necessary component of discipleship, which is what we're talking about all during this month of June as we begin a new series as part of our, our year of purpose, our year of discovering who we are and why God has us here. I feel like all throughout 2018, the Lord's been leading us to kind of discern, to rediscover what our purpose is as Woodmont Baptist Church. Why does he have us at this location? Why does he have us, this multi-generational church of young and old, why does he want a Baptist church to be in Green Hills for this time and this season with the leaders that we have? Why has he done this? So all year long, we're asking those kinds of questions. And to, to start it off in uh, January, I, I preached through the letter to the Ephesians from a, an ecclesiological perspective, examining the letter to the Ephesians through the lens of what is God's plan for the church? What is God's purpose for the body of Christ? We, we did that for two whole months, and then in March we spent the whole month in prayer, just really bringing ourselves to our knees, asking God to show us what he's up to in our community and how we can be involved in that. And then in April, we started Easter Sunday, uh, this five-month-long series, yes, five months, not five weeks, on the five New Testament purposes of the church. And of course, we began with the primary purpose, worship. And then on April 8th, Richard preached an amazing sermon on worship. This guy who has eaten, slept, and breathed worship for most of his life, who told us that worship is about getting over ourselves and giving ourselves away in honor of the Lord and what he's done for us and who he is. And then last month, we dove into this topic of evangelism, which was a, a tough one for, for those of us who may be afraid of social awkwardness in conversations. I'm glad Trevor challenged our, our kids to go ahead and start those gospel conversations, talking about Jesus with others. My daughter just asked me, did anybody tell you that Jesus loves you and, and to pass it on? And I said, no, I guess that counts, her telling me now. So uh, I've been told today the good news of Jesus. And we talked about sharing the good news that we have with those who need to hear it because we love them, because we care about them enough to give them the same hope, the same great news, the best news ever, that you can go from death to life, that you can go from meaningless to meaningful, that you can go from having a life of no consequence to a life of significance. And now we're going to dive into my, one of my favorite subjects, discipleship. You know, the word discipleship brings up a lot of different connotations for a lot of different people, depending on if you were raised in church or not, or what kind of church maybe you were raised in. You know, if you go out of our church parking lot and take a left and go four miles up the road exactly, it'll put you right in front of First Baptist Nashville, where I grew up going to church. And every Sunday night during my teen years in the 1990s, yes, I was a teenager in the 90s, we had something called what? Anybody know what we had on Sunday nights? Discipleship training. That's right. We called it DT because that's really cool, right? DT sounds awesome. <laughs> and we, I've heard from other people that before discipleship training on Sunday nights, there was something else called, anybody know what it was called? Training union. You guys are some solid Baptists in here, man. That's great. Training union. That was before my time. I'm not familiar with that. But that... That word 
discipleship, words like training, I feel like those words have kind of fallen out of use, right? I don't honestly know of any church that has an active discipleship training program that's really intentional about training disciples. And we have Sunday morning Bible study groups, we have a Tuesday morning men's group, we have these women's Bible studies. I would say those are all part of discipleship. But I want to make sure that Woodmont, as we move forward into the next 75 years of our history, that we are a church that takes discipleship seriously. There's intentional about what Trevor, I'm so glad that you and Rachel have been using that verse to talk about discipleship because yes, people talk about the Great Commission all the time as an evangelistic verse, and it is. Go and, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. That's not something that you can do on the street corner, is it? That's not something you can do on a week-long mission trip, even. When we share the good news through evangelism in Guatemala, we make sure that that church follows up with making disciples, because we can't do it if we're not there with them. But we can make disciples of the people that God has entrusted to our flock, to our place, because discipleship is an absolutely essential purpose of any New Testament church. So for our first week, we're going to look at a passage together this morning from the letter to the Romans this morning to inform us about what discipleship is really all about at its core. So let's stand, if you're able to, in honor of God's Word, as I read from Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 30. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. You know, the, the eighth chapter of Romans is, is one of these amazing, uh, rich, and deep passages that can be really daunting and overwhelming to dive into. It's a tough passage to preach from. There's so many questions that come up, but there's some incredible insights in this passage regarding discipleship that are well worth the effort. So I just want us to wade into these waters of Romans 8 together a little bit this morning and see what the Lord is saying to us here. The Apostle Paul writes these words as part of this gospel manifesto to the churches that are in Rome, these young, growing churches that are established in the most important city in the known world at that time. And the whole letter is this theologically rich exposition of how 
sinners are, are, are saved by grace through faith, how God has forged a way for broken and flawed people to be restored to himself, for, for a, a way for them to be redeemed from the sin and the suffering and the death that their sins have earned for them. By this point in the letter, in, in chapter 8, Paul's made it abundantly clear about the predicament that we're all in, that we're in the same sinking boat of sin, like I said last week. And he's also now shown us this amazing hope and the assurance of salvation that is available to all of us who call on the name of Jesus Christ. Because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we have this good news, this hope that assures us that we are going to persevere to the end, that we are going to see all things made new eventually because of Jesus Christ. And that future hope, that expectation of the renewal of our bodies and souls and minds through Jesus Christ, that hope carries us through difficult times. It's amazing as a pastor to hear how hard some of the situations are that people in our church are in. We don't have any clue, but if I had to look around and just guess based on my conversations with you guys, there's a lot of hurt and a lot of tough situations that the people on the pews around you are going through right now, whether they show it or not. And even though we don't know what's going on, Verse 26 says that in times of suffering, in our weakness, that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. When we walk through the, the valley of the shadow of death, you know, our perspective is so limited. We can't see beyond the shadow. We can't see where the valley ends and opens up. We can't see where the next mountaintop may be, but God can God knows our situation intimately. He knows it better than we do. And his ability to understand our situation is not contingent upon our ability to express it to him in prayer. God isn't waiting for us to articulate something to him so he can understand it. God is sovereign. He knows what time it is. He knows where you are. He knows what you're going through better than you yourself know. And during those hard times in our lives where we can't bring ourselves to pray, when the, the, the best we can offer to God is just a groan, it, it says the, the groanings here, most commentators believe that that's us groaning, not the Holy Spirit. That, that all we can get out in a time of suffering is a groan. We can't articulate anything. That verse 27 says in those times, it is the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us in accordance with God's will. See, this, the sovereignty of God, his will is on display throughout the letter to the Romans, especially here in chapter 8. Even though we groan, even though we don't see a way out of the valley, we can trust that God is sovereignly working all things out for our good. Verse 28 is one of those verses that's often misused or misinterpreted or misquoted. I've, I've been present at the funeral home when some well-meaning Christian person says to the bereaved, I'm so sorry for your loss, 
But you know, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the good, so you're going to be okay, brother. <laughs> it's not always helpful in those situations to just throw Romans 8, 28 like a bomb on someone who's hurting. In order to really interpret verse 28 properly, we have to ask, what is the good that all things are working together for? What does good really look like for God and for God's people? It's, is it about my earthly comfort? Is it about my, my physical or material well-being? Of course not, despite what prosperity preachers would have you believe. Verse 29 and verse 30 show us it's not true. It's not about our physical well-being or anything materialistic. It says, all things are working together for the good of, of those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. All things work together not for what we think is best, but all things work together so that you and I as God's people may be conformed to the image of Jesus. Just like God has planned for us from the very beginning, he predestined that his children would look like Jesus. That is for our good. That is our good that all things are working together for conformity to the image of Christ. And then verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. All things, all circumstances, all situations in our world and in our community, in our homes, work together to help us fulfill our calling. <clears throat> That's what, that which we were called to. <clears throat> they work together to help us bear much fruit in the kingdom, in keeping with the scriptures, and in keeping with our justified status now. To, and ultimately, all things work together for the glorification of God and his people. Glorification is the ultimate end of all of this work of the world. And all these events, all these results, conformity to Christ, answering the call on our lives, living as justified people, and ultimate glorification, these all have much to say about discipleship. But to really understand what the Bible is talking about when we talk about discipleship, we have to know a little bit more about what it meant to be a disciple in the first century when Jesus lived. You know, there were some standard educational practices among the, the, the Jewish world during the first century in the Palestine area. Next to the synagogue in any given community, there was a school. And that school was for all the little Jewish boys, sorry girls, girls didn't get to go to school, of course, it was a patriarchal society. And all the boys in the, in the Jewish towns around Palestine, when they turned five or six, they were sent to Hebrew school, five days a week, all day. And in Hebrew school, they would learn to, to read and write Hebrew, of course, but they would also memorize the Torah, the whole Torah. From the ages of five to 12, they would be hard at work every day with their slates and their chalk working on Hebrew scriptures, Hebrew writing from the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, memorized completely by the time they were 
12. That's a lot of memorization. I think about how hard school has gotten. That's 5,852 verses by the time they finish this primary school from 5 to 12. And that, that first level of education was called Beit Sefer, which in Hebrew means house of the book. And by the time they, they graduated from Beit Sefer, their, their graduation was to go to Jerusalem and celebrate participating in their first Passover meal in Jerusalem. That was really what scholars believe has led to our modern day bar mitzvah. And when they graduated Beit Sefer, they would be apprenticed then to their father's job. They would enter into the family business, the family trade. Some of us like myself and Logan Newton and others already did that, already followed what their dads do and, and are in working in the same industry that their dad worked in. Richard and I talked about, he was worried about his son if he would just go into music ministry and, because that's what he saw his dad do and, and he hoped he wouldn't. <laughs> By God's grace, he hasn't. I wonder about Jude and Isaiah, if what they'll end up doing. So Bates Affair, once they finished, they would end up just being whatever their dad did. So we know that Jesus' disciples, for example, were fishermen. They had already finished Beit Sefer and been apprenticed to their father's trades. But the best of the best, the brightest students from Beit Sefer would then go on to a secondary education from about the ages of 12 to 16. And, and this was called uh, Beit Midrash or Beit Talmud, which both mean house of study or house of learning. And, and these brilliant, it was like a, like a college-level courses they were taking from, for five years, from, from 12 to 16 or 17. And these were advanced studies where they, they would read the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures, the other 34 books that along with the Torah make up the entire, what we call Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. They would, they would learn to interpret all the Scriptures. They would learn the history behind them. They would learn the various schools of thought that different rabbis had passed down throughout the tradition of interpretation in Jewish life. And then when they finished that, about 16 or 17, they would then go and be apprenticed a little bit later than their buddies, but they would follow in the footsteps of their dad and do whatever their dad did for a living, except for the best of the best. The, the brightest, the most exceptional students in Beit Midrash, those who showed a, a, an aptitude for rabbinical studies and for rabbinical vocation, would then be able to apply for an apprenticeship with a rabbi. When you were 16 or 17, and if you were really an amazing scholar, by the way, in Beit Midrash, you think school's hard now? They had to memorize the rest of the Old Testament completely memorized from Genesis to Malachi, 39 books. And then if they so chose to, to go on to be an apprentice to a rabbi, they would apply to a rabbi and ask, can I be your disciple? And the rabbi would say, okay, let me ask you a few questions. Quote Malachi 3, 2, go. Okay, now what does Rabbi Hillel say? What does other rabbis say? What does, and he would grill them on all these these interpretations and have him quote all these things. And if the student was good enough, he was able to follow that rabbi as an apprentice. And like I said, that was the word that became disciple. Someone who followed a rabbi. Someone who would be apprenticed 
to follow this rabbi, someone who'd been accepted by a rabbi as their intern, basically. The Hebrew word for a disciple is a Talmud. The Talmudim were these students who would walk around following their rabbi. And they were already experts in the scriptures. They were highly educated by this point, but their job now was the most difficult of all. Now they had to follow their rabbi, literally walking in his footsteps from town to town. The Talmudim would actually attempt to put their foot in the exact footprint in the dust of their rabbi. If a rabbi had a limp, you'd see a whole train of disciples behind him limping like him as they attempted to literally walk like their rabbi. Because the school of learning, Beit Talmud, the, the house of study, Beit Midrash, that was, that was over. It was now time for the school of living. You see, the, the goal of the, the Talmudim was not to know what the rabbi knew. The goal of the disciples was to be what the rabbi was. The goal of the Talmudim was to live in such a way that mimicked the life of the rabbi. The Talmudim were already smart. They had been in school for 10 or 12 years of intense study, but they were not yet wise. Wisdom comes from being able to apply what you already know. And wisdom is best learned by example, by following one's rabbi, by carefully observing the life of the rabbi and then attempting to duplicate it. One of the common ancient blessings for a Talmud, if you were a, a Jewish man, you wanted to bless a disciple, you would say, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. It was a way of basically saying, may you follow in the footsteps of your rabbi so closely and so constantly and so consistently that the dust that he kicks up would just be all over you. Because then you're learning to be like the rabbi. Do you see where we're going with this? <laughs> this has huge implications for discipleship, doesn't it? Romans 8.29 just told us that conformity to Christ is our good. That human flourishing, that thriving, is in direct proportion to our ability to be like Jesus. That the more we are like him, that the more we will flourish and thrive. That's what discipleship is all about. I've heard some people call discipleship followship. That's really what it is. Christian discipleship is about giving up our lives. I surrender all, like Nate played earlier. Giving up all that we are in order to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Master so that we can become like Him. If you want a concise definition for Christian discipleship, it's this, becoming more like Jesus. That's what discipleship's all about becoming transformed into Christ-likeness. As we learn to follow Jesus more closely, more nearly, more faithfully, we are then transformed into his image. And that transformation is not an instantaneous change. Again, this is not something that we do on short-term mission trips. It's a process. You know, our world is obsessed with quick fixes and rapid transformation. I read a study that recently 
uh, found out that the health and wellness industry uh, spends $3.7 billion globally each year. The entire, entire pharmaceutical uh, industry, which I would thought would be much bigger, is only $1 billion globally, less than a third of the wellness industry. I'm sure you've all seen those ads with the side-by-side -side comparisons of the before and the after, right? <laughs> Some guy's got a six-pack in six weeks, and so can you. If only you'll send this amount of money to this address and for this certain product, and you too can look like this in six weeks, have a radical transformation. But for disciples, following their rabbi was not a, a week-long excursion. It, it wasn't even a, a six-week study abroad program. It wasn't even a four-year degree program. Following a rabbi as a disciple was a lifelong endeavor. It was a vocation that they were called to, to be and to do, living their rest of their lives, becoming like this wise and holy rabbi. It was their all-consuming job. Day by day, they were transformed more, by, more and more into the likeness of their rabbi. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul, who is deeply familiar with this process of discipleship, in verse 18, he writes to the church in Corinth, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You know, the, the veil that he's referring to is the veil that once separated us from the holy God, the, the veil that was represented by the curtain in the temple that was torn in half from top to bottom when Jesus died on the cross. His saving work and his victory over death and sin has removed that veil between us and the Lord. And now we're able to behold the glory of God as we follow Jesus as beloved sons and daughters as God's own disciples. And we follow Christ, and, and as we do that, we're being transformed into the same image of what? The same image that Jesus bears, the image of God himself. You know, we used to bear the image of God. Humans were made in God's image from the very beginning. We were meant to reflect God to the rest of the world. Remember that when God made Adam and Eve, he made them special from all the rest of creation because he made them in his image. They were supposed to be the co-rulers, the, the vice regents over this creation, taking care of it alongside of God, the, the Holy Trinity. But they brought sin into this world and everything became broken, including us. And that's why a process of transformation is now necessary that the glory of the Lord is restored in us as we walk the path of discipleship. And again, we see here that in this verse in 2 Corinthians that it's the Holy Spirit who's working in us, guiding us on the path of discipleship, working all things together for our good, which is conformity to Christ. And that process of transformation begins with evangelism. Evangelism and discipleship are very closely connected, aren't they? 
go and make disciples, first you got to evangelize them, right? And then teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. First, they have to accept the good news of Jesus Christ. That's evangelism. But then there's a process of becoming like him, learning to obey all that he's commanded us. You know, the moment we placed our trust in Jesus' ability to make us right with himself and to take all of our sin and suffering and shame and give us his perfect righteousness instead, that's when we become justified before the holy God. You know, evangelism aims to see people become justified by grace through faith. But discipleship is really the next leg of our spiritual journey, isn't it? Discipleship is what theologians call sanctification. You know, sanctification means to become more holy. And, and you're justified the moment you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord, and he comes into your heart and saves you. But you're not yet sanctified. So you begin this discipleship path of sanctification, of becoming more like Jesus, showing the image of God in your life. So when does that sanctification journey end? When, when do we finally finish the transformation process? When will we cease to walk the path of discipleship? Well, we know from Scripture that our race will only be over when our earthly bodies are used up, spent. But even then, we're not going to be fully complete until Jesus returns and finishes making all things new. Then comes the third part of our salvation process, glorification. Then we'll be raised in glorious new bodies to reign with Jesus forever in the new heavens and the new earth. So you see why discipleship is so important. Discipleship is what God's people do between coming to faith for the first time and the time that Jesus comes back to earth. It's God's purpose for us while we wait for the renewal of all things. We're called to spend our earthly lives following Christ, our Master and Lord, in order to become like Him. If we're going to flourish, if we're going to thrive, both as a church and as individuals in our lives, we must focus on Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith, as we closely follow His will for our lives. You know, I went to a funeral earlier this year uh, for a friend of mine whose dad died unexpectedly, and, and they had pictures set up all over the sanctuary of his dad, and it was from different ages and stages of his dad's life, from the time he was a little boy to a teenager and a young man and, a, and an older adult, and everyone at the funeral couldn't help but comment on how strongly the resemblance was between the pictures of his dad and my friend and even his own sons. He has three sons of his own now, and they look just like the pictures of his dad as a boy. And everyone said something, oh my goodness, this looks just like your son. This looks just like you. You, you look just like twins. And he got up to give a, a eulogy in the service, did a beautiful job, and he said, a lot of you have mentioned how similar my dad looks to me and, and my boys. And he said, we have strong genes in this family. We have strong genes. The same thing's true for the Christian family. We have strong genes in the Christian family. We have strong attributes that are clearly displayed and embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. The question for you and me today is, do we 
bear a family resemblance to our big brother. The Bible tells us that we are made co-heirs with Jesus. Do we have the same distinguishing marks that Jesus Christ displayed to the world that made Jesus different from any other rabbi who ever lived, which means his disciples should be different from any other disciples who ever lived? Do we show forth his amazing attributes? If we're part of his special family, if we are brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ now, then let us show the world what our big brother is like by clearly reflecting his compassion, his impartiality, his selflessness, his courage and willingness to speak truth to power, to go against the culture, to turn the other cheek, to go the second mile. And of course, as he told his disciples in the upper room, the world will know that we are his disciples by our love. Do we love in such a way that the world says those must be Christ's followers? Will we follow our master in such a way that we become like him? Will we be covered in the dust of our rabbi? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have called us, that you have predestined us to be your disciples. God, we thank you that you have extended this offer in your grace and in your mercy and in your love to men and women of this world, to boys and girls, to come along and be a part of what you're doing, to go where you are going, to walk in your footsteps as we become transformed into your likeness from one degree of glory to another. God, I pray that we would faithfully Bear your image to this world that is so full of darkness and sin and hurt. This world needs to see your face. May we be faithful to show forth those attributes which you yourself displayed among us in the person of Jesus. Now we, as your disciples, want to come along and be the kind of disciples who eagerly copy their rabbi who strive to be the kind of disciples who faithfully follow behind their rabbi, trying to be just like him. God, I pray that you would all month long convict us where we need to be convicted. Show us how we can follow more nearly, more faithfully, and more closely as we learn to walk with you. We know it's a journey, God, that it's not instantaneous, that we're not just going to leave this place instantly holy and like you, but I pray that we would continue to, to walk faithfully the long journey of sanctification that you have for each of us. Help us to be engaged in our, our Bible reading. Help us to be engaged in prayer. Help us to be engaged in telling the good news to others, as Trevor's challenged our children to do. Help us to worship you with our whole hearts, not holding anything back from you. Oh God, we love you. 
And we give our lives to you in order to follow you and to be like you. We pray this in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We're going to have a time of invitation now. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never been justified before God by saying, Jesus, I trust in your ability to make me right before a holy God, if you're going to get in the wheelbarrow like we talked about last week and allow Jesus to do what you cannot do, then I'd love to talk with you about that right now during our time of invitation. If you want to join Woodmont Baptist Church and be a part of what God's doing here, then we invite you to come do that at this time as well. If you just want to come and pray here at the altar, if you just want to come and kneel and, and bring your body to where your heart is near to the cross, or if you want to pray with someone specific, I'll ask Trey if you'll come stand, and Jan Bennett if you'll come stand on this side. If you just want to pray with someone, with a, a minister or a deacon or whoever, or myself, we'll be here to receive you. Whatever it is, we're going to talk about this journey. We're going to sing about the journey step by step as we follow our Lord Jesus. Let's stand and sing and reflect step by step.